Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hi, everyone. It's Julie. After we first released this episode, we learned that it includes a mistake. We wanted to let you know. This episode discusses a computer algorithm that analyzes a book. About halfway into the episode, we say that the algorithm lists specific sentences in the book as examples of moments of conflict or conflict resolution or changes in the book's pacing. Those examples didn't make sense to us, and we said so in the episode. Then we released the episode, and we received a very nice email from Matthew Jockers, who helped create the algorithm. He said, in essence, that the sentences are not meant as specific examples. Instead, they're intended only to give authors a sense of the broader section of the book where the change is occurring. So we misread that portion of the report, and we apologize for that. We hope you'll listen with that correction in mind. Now, on with the show. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and has ever wondered about them. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and its sequels, and the Top Secret Diary of Celie Valentine series. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. In this episode, we are asking, can artificial intelligence predict and help authors craft a bestseller? So in an earlier episode, episode 20, we spoke with Matthew Jockers about an algorithm that he helped create that does exactly that. It uses data from thousands of bestsellers, and it predicts whether a book will become a bestseller, and it offers suggestions for improving the book's chances to sell well. In his book, he calls the algorithm the bestsellerometer. And since writing the book, he's started a company called Authors AI that lets authors submit their manuscripts for assessment by the bestsellerometer, which he now calls Marlowe. So of course, we wanted to find out, does this algorithm work? Yes, we were dying to know. And unfortunately, we couldn't submit our own work because Marlowe isn't set up to analyze children's books. So we needed to find somebody who writes novels for grown-ups who was willing to be our guinea pig. And luckily, I knew the perfect person, Mark Aceto. Mark is one of my best friends from high school. I've known him for more than 30 years, so I knew he would be totally game for this, and he was. I mean, amazing. He very generously volunteered the manuscript for one of his novels called How I Paid for College, a novel of sex, theft, friendship, and musical theater. If you haven't read it already, you definitely should. Mark is also the librettist of nine musicals, including the Broadway show Allegiance, A Room with a View, and Bastard Jones, which he will direct as a feature film. His comedy Birds of a Feather won the Helen Hayes Award for Best New Play. He's a former commentator on NPR's All Things Considered. He's written for the New York Times, Playbill, and American Theater. I mean, I do not know what they were putting in the water in your high school, but I sure wish they would bottle it. It's phenomenal. You had some pretty talented students there. Well, it's kind of you to say, and we can have another episode where we talk about my high school and the... We can have another episode where we talk about my high school. We'll just leave it at that. I can't wait. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, maybe it uh, would be useful if you gave a quick plot synopsis so people have an idea of what the book is about. Oh, sure. How I Paid for College is about a 17-year-old named Edward Zani. He's a high school senior in 1983, and he schemes to steal his college tuition money when his wealthy father refuses to pay for him to study acting at Juilliard. So apparently, and you know better than I, this is semi-autobiographical. Mark has said that it is just true enough to be deeply embarrassing to his family. Yes, I can vouch for how much of this book is true, but I am not saying which parts. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. okay, so here is how Marlowe works on author's AI. You input your manuscript, and 15 minutes later, it spits out a report that gives you advice for what changes you might make to increase the odds that your book will be a bestseller. We were curious to see what Marlowe would predict in terms of whether or not How I Paid for College would be a bestseller, and whether Mark would agree with Marlowe's suggestions for changing his book. And we had hard data for comparison, because How I Paid for College came out in 2004. So we asked Mark how he would describe its actual sales performance, and this is what he said. In its first 15 months, it sold about 28,500 copies. It won the Ken Kesey Award for fiction, was the New York Times editor's pick. My picture was in People magazine just a month before my 20th high school reunion, which is perhaps the most important <laughs> arbiter of success. <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't a bestseller, but it was encouraging enough to warrant a sequel. I would call that a success. Absolutely. One of the elements of publishing, as you both know, that is so terrifying for a writer is the benchmarks for success are set by someone else. The publisher determines what is success depending on the amount of money that they have invested in the book, i.e. the writer's advance as well as the number of copies that they print. So I can't say for certain whether they were feeling satisfied, but what I can say is, well, let me just put it this way. On October 1st of 2003, I did not have an agent yet for this book. And by the end of the month, we had sold the book to Random House in just three days for 50 grand. We had sold the English rights for another 50 grand and then the film rights to Columbia Pictures for another 100 grand. And then subsequently, five foreign languages, including Braille, which I love. So that was obviously a, a wonderful payday for me and completely disorienting as a life-changing event. Yeah. So what factors do you think contributed to its sales success? We're curious about what did the publisher do and what did you do to try to drive sales? I got really excellent PR help with this book. They definitely championed it. I was moved towards the front of the line in terms of that division's titles for the fall. So I got about as good a chance, I think, as most debut novelists get. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, yes, when it was a New York Times uh, editor's pick, they responded by then placing an ad in the New York Times book review section. So they definitely capitalized on that. I had a very good book tour, Mm -hmm. They did a really good job, and I was very proactive in terms of getting out there and 
talking to anybody about anything. I mean, I ended up eventually on the Rotary Club circuit, which if you've never been to a Rotary Club meeting, it begins with a Pledge of Allegiance and the singing of the national anthem. This is not exactly the environment that this like no. crazy queer guy shows up and tells this story. They loved me at the Rotary Club. So I had as good a chance as any, and I feel like I went to the Olympics and didn't medal, but certainly did very respectably. Yeah. Do you have any theories about why it wasn't a bestseller? I can only quote the words of my editor who one night in a bar in New York ran his fingers across his face and up through his hair saying, we just don't know what to do with you. (laughs) (laughs) And certainly the words too gay came up a lot. Mm Mm-hmm. To which I replied at one point, well, yeah, but what about David Sedaris? To which my editor replied, oh, you're much gayer than David Sedaris. Oh, Jesus. (laughs) Which, for those who are not familiar with David Sedaris, you have to consider that he made his name doing a radio broadcast with a very heavy lisp about being a Christmas elf at Macy's, during which he imitated Billie Holiday. So I'm gayer than that, just so you know. What I'm reacting to is that your editor would say these things to you. This was 2000 and probably four or five, right? Yes. And this was pre-Glee. This was pre-High School Musical. Yes. And both of which are just similar enough to my book to be annoying without being actionable. Yeah. So the... The thing about Glee and High School Musical with regards to the the question of too gay is that they did put the straight people front and center. You know, the Chris Colfer character eventually emerged on Glee as the lead and it became a story about a gay guy and his female best friend. But that is not how that show started. It entered the mainstream through the straight romantic protagonists, as did Mm -hmm. High School Musical. What held the book back, I think, was it's not just that it was a a gay protagonist. And I think what they meant when they said it was too gay is that it was too explicitly sexual, i.e. sexually uh, gay, because it does write honestly about those factors in a way that I think was limiting to the audience. I think in retrospect, the subtitle, I should say, was probably a mistake because it wasn't really subway friendly to be reading something that says a tale of sex, theft, friendship, and musical theater. As cheeky and as accurate as that is, having the word sex in big letters on the title got attention, but I think also inhibited people from wanting to be seen reading it. We talk much more later about how the content of How I Paid for College affected its sales. But first, we turn to one of the primary criteria that Marlowe assesses to see how a book compares to the bestsellers that it has analyzed in the past. They call that factor narrative beats. Those are the turning points in the novel. There are positive narrative beats where conflict is resolved and normalcy is restored. There are also conflict beats where new conflict is introduced. 
So if you've written a page turner with a driving plot, you should have beats, positive or negative, that are fairly evenly spaced throughout. For example, The Da Vinci Code and Fifty Shades of Grey have narrative beats every 10% of the book, pretty much like clockwork. Right, which is apparently one of the secrets to the success of those books. Uh, With How I Paid for College, what Marla reported was that basically the book gets off to a fast start, and then there's a bit of a lull until we're about a quarter of the way through. And after that, there are regular beats, a la Fifty Shades of Grey and Da Vinci Code. So we asked Mark if he thinks Marla's assessment of the pacing and How I Paid for College is accurate. And here's what he said. It's fascinating to me that they were able to identify that because that is absolutely true. The design of the story is very much based on screenplay structure, which means that there is a major turning point at 25% and there's also a major turning point at 10%. Between those two things, I was very aware that I was setting up the audience for a fall. So the book does not come zooming out of the gate. The book actually is is very much designed with cliffhangers at the end of every chapter, but those cliffhangers are not necessarily associated with the overall drive of the story. They're what I refer to as eyelash problems, which is you basically create a tapestry out of eyelashes. So I tried to keep the reader constantly turning pages by dealing with these sort of micro problems on the way towards the major problem so that we could lull the reader into a sense of security. And whether or not that is what stopped the book from being a bestseller or not, I don't know. Because one of the commonalities of most of the reviews is that people couldn't put it down. And now I wonder, you know, if I had to do it over again, would I try to find a way to be able to make sure that the narrative beats that are constant throughout the book are more associated with that larger narrative thrust. That's fascinating. And I love this idea of the eyelash, what did you call them? The eyelash problem? Eyelash problems. problems. I wish I could take credit for it, but I'm going to have to because I don't remember who said it to me. Right. I am often accused of having a slow start and then a really great finish. After writing two novels, I then turned my attention towards writing for the theater. And most writers tend to have trouble in the second act. And I tend to finish really well. I write very good second acts, mostly because I'm trying to deal with a multiplicity of ideas. And that takes time to set up and takes time for the reader or the audience to get acquainted. And once they're in it and involved, then the payoffs are hugely satisfying. But it does require patience at the beginning, and that is not the hallmark of commercial entertainment. If you turn to page five of the report, you'll see what Marlowe identifies as positive and negative beats. Again, the positive beat being where conflict is resolved and negative being where conflict is introduced. Maybe you'll just tell us whether or not you think that Marlowe has correctly identified positive and negative beats. They feel like sort of like arbitrary little moments that I'm not quite sure what they're identifying as being the major conflicts. 
It's so interesting. One they write as a positive beat is, she put her hand on my knee. Are you in some kind of trouble, baby doll? No, I say. I don't know why that's a positive beat. Maybe because it's supposed to be conflict resolution. So are you in trouble? No. Conflict resolved, maybe. Maybe. But what about the next one? The place goes nuts. People actually scream. I smash the blood pack under my shirt and collapse on the floor as the figure, Boonbrain, actually dashes out the nearest exit. Boonbrain is another character. Right. That doesn't feel like conflict resolution to me. I don't know. Yeah, and so I'm not quite sure what they're going for. I mean, this very moment, for instance, is a description of my performance, Edward's performance, they're both actually one and the same, of Jesus in Godspell and this very cool ending that we came up with and how the audience responds. I'm not sure this machine is really understanding this book very well. I don't want to disparage this algorithm because I do think it really does have value and it's fascinating, but I do feel like it would benefit with some human interaction to be able to explain why that was the example, because I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't get it. Right. Yeah. It is interesting that if, if you look at the granular detail, it doesn't seem to make sense. And yet when we look at the bar graph of your narrative beats, they're exactly as you expected them to be. Let's talk a little bit about pacing. There's a graph here that looks like a wave, and it's meant to mirror the reader's experience. So identifying areas where a reader would turn the pages most quickly, those would be the peaks, and slower moments of foregrounding and scene setting would be the valleys. Again, what's interesting, I can tell you exactly at 15% of the way into the book is when Edward's father comes home and announces that he is getting remarried what turns out very quickly to be a sociopath enters their house and becomes Edward's stepmother. And that isn't necessarily associated with what I would think of as sort of the linear outer plot, but is very much an engine of that plot. And what's more is a big emotional component. I do wonder whether is it just missing that by virtue of limitations of what an algorithm could do. Or later on in the report, Marlowe talks about how typically when things are faster paced, writers use shorter sentences. And that in moments where you're trying to build intensity or anticipation, you'll use longer sentences. Maybe in your case, it meant that you were really stretching out those sentences to emphasize the dread and the anticipation. I think it would be instructive for us, again, to go to your words, because Marlowe has picked out the fastest paced sections of your narrative, which for Marlowe means, I think, your shortest sentences. And then we can contrast that with the slowest paced sections. For you as a writer, I think it's just reversed. So this is what Marlowe thinks is fast paced. That's how I see myself, a Pied Piper figure, or perhaps I should say Pied Pepper figure. Or here's another one. In her office in the basement, On criant days, you have to take off your shoes and tiptoe lightly around the house. That doesn't feel like a fast-paced moment to me. Would you agree? Yeah, this is where it's all, yeah, confusing to me. And then here's a slow-paced, what Marlowe has identified as a slow-paced moment. I clear my throat and crack my neck. Okay, I say, have you ever seen after a winter storm how a sailor keeps his sail taut and, oh, that's not right, keep going, 
mean, that, that definitely feels mass-based to me. See, that is Edward rehearsing a monologue from Antigone. You know what it is? Somehow it feels like, as you said, on the more sort of global level, it seems to understand and excavate certain truths about the book. Mm-hmm. It reminds me a lot of something that I've learned in the theater, which is that the audience is always right as a whole. Mm. For instance, when I'm watching my work on stage, I will watch the audience. I'll watch to see, are they fidgeting in their seats? Is there suddenly an outbreak of coughing throughout in particular sections? And I do that multiple times to, to get an overall average. And my feeling is the audience as a whole, always right, because they are the audience. They are the, <laughs> duh. They are, <laughs> they are the people who write our paychecks. However, individually, a person comes up and says, oh, this is the problem that is the, the issue. If I hear that from multiple people, I'll take it seriously. But even then, when they start to analyze why that's a problem, there's part of me that says, mm, you should leave that to the experts because yes, you might be bored in scene three, but the reason you're bored in scene three is because I actually did something wrong in scene one, not because I did something wrong in scene three. Yeah. And I feel like you need a certain level of expertise to be able to actually analyze that. Let's talk a little bit about major subjects, because one of the major themes in Matt's book, The Bestseller Code, is that best-selling novels tend to have a small number of major topics in them. And so there'll be one or two major topics and one or two secondary topics. And what they mean by topics is things like work, work-life balance, body, drugs, Hollywood, dating, that kind of thing. For How I Paid for College, Marlowe identified one big major topic, which was work-life balance, and then a whole bunch of smaller ones. Do you agree with how Marlowe has defined your topics? And would you consider, if you were to rewrite the book or if you were transported back in time, would you consider reducing the number of topics? I think that's valuable information. I'm not sure what I would do with it, but I'm fascinated by it, and I would take it seriously. Because perhaps part of what is appealing about the book or what makes it what it is, is the broadness of its topics. But if I were to make that decision, then I would have to decide, is that a hill I want to die on? Is that just what I am and what I'm about and what this is? Or could I still maintain the integrity of what I'm trying to accomplish in a more focused way? Mm -hmm. Which is a very existential question for me as a human being and as a writer, I tend to be very broad in wide ranging in my interests. And what's more, Eve knows that I have synesthesia, which is a neurological phenomenon where you associate disassociated ideas, typically, and in my case, colors and numbers and letters. I think it's one of the reasons why I'm not good at math, because to me, all odd numbers are cool colors and all even numbers are warm colors. And when you add those things together, they don't result in the right color palette. So therefore, math doesn't really make sense to me in a way that it does to somebody who understands math. It gets all muddy and weird in the way in which I process that information. That was a very long way of saying, no surprise, 
that everything reminds me of something else. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. therefore, it's difficult for me to stay focused on one very particular topic because 10 ideas all remind me of the same thing. I'm guessing that this confirms what you were saying earlier with respect to what Marlowe is good and bad at, because it sounds like you're agreeing that you have perhaps too many topics. But I'm also guessing if you look at the list that you might not agree with the actual topics that Marlowe has identified as being something you were setting out to cover. Like swearing, for example, is probably just incorporated into the text as opposed to a topic of discussion. Yes. Drugs and street trade account for 4.11% of my story. And I would say that is by no means an accurate description of the book by anyone's standards. <laughs> no, no. The book is not about those two things, but the book does have high school kids who get high. But that's not even a focus. It's, it's an ancillary thing in the book. It's a plot point, but I think still most people could agree that the subtitle is accurate. The book is basically about sex, theft, friendship, and musical theater. Those should be the top four topics. And the fact that Marlowe didn't identify those is very interesting to me and is worthwhile examining. And I'd say, huh, that's not what I intended. Oh, really? Boy, drugs are what prevail? Hmm, that's kind of not what I was going for. So perhaps I should right. take a look at that. <laughs> I would definitely use this service if I were writing another novel. Um, you've made it really clear, Mark, that there are pieces of Marlowe's reporting that would have been useful to you that may have increased sales for you. But I just want to say that I don't think we can discount the possibility that in 2004, when this book came out, there was still too much homophobia for it to find its place. Mm. Because it's a phenomenal book. It's a compulsively readable book. It is a book you don't want to put down. And there still is plenty of homophobia, but there was much more then. I'm in agreement. I look at the analysis and I feel like there are things that could absolutely make the book better and stronger and certainly perhaps widen its appeal somewhat. But ultimately, it does feel like the report is not able to take into account factors, I think, that really probably contributed to its not being a bestseller. Mm -hmm. Marlowe doesn't judge and Marlowe isn't subjective. And so that's something, um, external biases is something that Marlowe wouldn't know. Exactly. So it's, reading it after the fact is bittersweet because it does articulate that there's a lot about the book that is working. It reminds me of the response to Allegiance, which is the Broadway musical that I wrote, which is about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Not a fundamentally commercial idea for a musical, granted, <laughs> but there are plenty of yeah. non-commercial ideas for musicals. Getting to Broadway definitely felt like it was my second chance at the Olympics. And once again, I really made a study of what I thought were the structural elements that could make a commercially successful show. And all of those elements are in place. 
And one thing that I was not able to control and did not realize was the way the subject matter would be received. I thought a story about the fortitude of Japanese Americans would be something that would inspire everybody. That a largely white audience would look at this family the way we look at the family in Fiddler on the Roof and identify with them despite the fact that they are different. And what I discovered was the level of appalling anti-Asian feeling amongst white audiences that the number of people who said, well, I just couldn't identify with them, or I only identified with the white character, or I just felt so terrible about America, even though my emphasis was entirely on the strength of the people under duress. So it's that very bittersweet feeling of, wow, I can take these qualities as a writer and analyze how to be able to do something that could perhaps hit the benchmarks of commercial success, but in using them for topics that are difficult for people to digest can end up being somebody who goes to the Olympics and doesn't meddle. What I've learned is the importance of finding a way to be able to monetize my more niche view of the world so that I'm not trying to succeed on some kind of playing field for which this information is not really meant to be received. It's so interesting. We conceived this episode pretty much as a lark, right? Just to try Marlowe out, but it really brought up some deep questions. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, the existential question of how to monetize your work when it's your passion. Right. And how oppression and societal biases create an unlevel playing field that can limit the audience and financial success, which Marlowe doesn't really get to. Yes. And don't forget how it can feel weird to be analyzed by a robot. But at the same time, <laughs> that robot can have valuable things to say. Because if you think about it, Marlowe got a lot of stuff right here. I mean, in, in a large sense, Marlowe said, Mark's book mostly, but not entirely matched the algorithm. And in fact, Mark's book did very well, but wasn't a bestseller. But Marlowe missed maybe some of the whys that happened. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't that there was a lull in the pacing in the beginning. Maybe it was because the book, according to Mark's editor, was too gay, quote unquote. Mm, right. And that's something artificial intelligence can't know. Right. I think it's so interesting how, and this goes back to something that Mark said too about an audience as a whole, that Marlowe did sense some problems that resonate as true for Mark, although never quite got right exactly which language was a turning point, for example. But that happens sometimes. Yeah, it does happen sometimes. It was very, I expected this to be fun, but it was fun and super interesting. I agree. So I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. Yes, and be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Mark at newedens.nyc and authorsai at authors.ai. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. 
You can find Eve at eveyohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.